Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is the New Books Network. We are joined today by George Klosko. He is the Henry L. and Grace Darty Professor of Politics at the University of Virginia, and he joins us today to discuss a recent book entitled, Why Should We Obey the Law? George, thanks so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Well, thank you for having me. So this is a short book. It's part of a series um, by the Polity uh, Press, and it's uh, the series is entitled Political Theory Today. And this is a short book, probably all of 120 or so pages. Uh, well, if you include the notes, about 130 pages on why should we obey the law. Uh, this is an argument about uh, the philosophy of obeying the law, and it's obviously intended for uh, younger readers, or I should say student readers. Um, what, what do you hope to accomplish with this text? Well, it's an overview of the subject. The subject um, is discussed by philosophers at a great deal of complexity, and of course, the philosophers have different views. So I prevent I present one view, um, which is one of the um, major views in the literature, and I try to present it at an accessible level. So people without a tremendous amount of background, um, undergraduates, as you say, maybe some graduate students can read it and get a feel for not only the general issues, but um, my specific take on the issues. And so you talk about uh, what you refer to as political obligation. Is that uh, essentially the same thing as obeying the law? Yeah, it, it, it's moral reasons to obey the law. As I say in the book, it actually goes back to great legal philosopher H.L.A. Hart, that um, you can be obliged to do something. So if I'm a gunman and I hold a gun to your head and I say, you know, give me your wallet, Um, You're obliged to do it. You're forced to do it. The consequences of not doing it would be unpleasant, whereas it is different if the government um, demands that you do something. The government, too, can force you. If the government wants you to pay income taxes, the government can force you to pay income taxes. It can make the consequences of not paying them unpleasant. But the difference between the government and the gunman is that we think it is right or presumably we think it is right that the government does this, that the government um, is doing something that is not immoral. It's doing something that is morally justified and asking us to pay taxes. And so the question of political obligation um, is why? Why is the government justified not only in forcing us to pay taxes, but in forcing us to obey um, an entire enormous range of laws? And you write at a significant uh, or sufficient degree of abstraction to note that this is basically any kind of government. It could be a monarchy. It could be an elected government, correct? Yeah, but um, the arguments will be very different depending upon which government we're talking about. 
Mm-hmm. And so the assumption I make, and I discuss it um, at various times in different works, is that we're talking about modern um, liberal democratic states. When I say liberal, I mean liberal with a small L, not the um, left wing of the Democratic Party, but the overall tradition of Western political theory for the last four or five hundred years. So I'm really thinking about governments like um, ours. And the assumption is that the governments are... Um, reasonably just and reasonably fair, things are very different if the governments are not reasonably just, reasonably fair. And so you talk about uh, different kinds of conditions that would exist in order to kind of a checklist, if you will, of uh, conditions that need to be satisfied, typically if the political obligation is legitimate. So can you go into what those kinds of conditions are and why they're important? Well, I'll provide a little bit of background, if you don't mind. You know, so again, the question is why you should obey the law. And in our tradition of political theory, the question was not raised all that much before, say, 50 years ago in the United States. And people began to question the government with Watergate, with the um, Vietnam War. And it became um, it became not obvious that we had... Um, a moral requirement to do what the government was telling us to do. And people began to raise the question. And when you raise the question, the traditional answer in, um, in our kind of political theory is consent, that we should obey the law because we have consented to obey it. It says in the Declaration of Independence that governments um, exercise their just powers with the consent of the governed. But once the philosophers started looking into consent, it became less than obvious that people have actually consented. So consent is a certain kind of an action. It has to be intentional. Um, People have to be aware that they are performing the action. They have to be competent to do it. They can't be forced to do it. it. It became less than obvious that people have consented. And so the question is, if we haven't consented, why should we obey the law? And scholars began to turn to the idea that the state provides important benefits. And so under certain conditions, if these, the conditions you mentioned, if the state provides benefits under these conditions, then we can have um, a requirement to obey the law. And the main um, idea here is that we get the benefits of the state from the cooperation of our fellow citizens. So it is only because our fellow citizens obey the law that we enjoy a peaceful and secure environment. It's only because our fellow citizens um, serve in the army, um, finance the military, that we're safe from foreign aggression, safe from terrorism, things like that. And so this idea that it's only fair that we cooperate in the same way that our fellow citizens do grounds what I think is our moral requirement to obey the laws. So um, the benefits the state provides are provided through law, and it is because our fellow citizens obey the law that we receive the benefits, therefore we should obey the laws also. And so the conditions that you mentioned um, would be that the benefits Um, have to be important. They have to be important benefits. Um, I say that they have to be indispensable to a satisfactory life. They have to be fairly distributed. It's not fair if certain citizens receive great benefits and others um, don't. 
the benefits are generally public goods. So these are provided in a kind of uniform way throughout the population as a whole, and that the benefits have to be worth their costs. So I think that if these three conditions are satisfied, we can ground requirements to obey not all laws, but a significant range of laws. So the conditions, again, are that the benefits have to be indispensable, they have to be worth their costs, and they have to be fairly distributed. Now, of course, at a level, certain level of abstraction, probably almost anyone could agree with this, uh, on the other hand, of course, many of the things that government does, and some of which different people might say are indispensable versus not, you're going to have a lot of political disagreement about this. So how does this theoretical approach account for political disagreement? Yes, yeah, so you know, so it's a very good question. So I say that the benefits are, quote, presumptively beneficial. So given the ordinary conditions of human um, existence or the ordinary conditions of existence in our civilization, there's a very strong presumption that we need law and order, we need defense. As we've just unfortunately seen, we need um, government to help protect us from dangerous infectious diseases. So there's a presumption that if the government provides these benefits, um, we have a requirement to cooperate, but it's a rebuttable presumption. So if for some reason, as you say, if you disagree, if you can make a case that you are different from other people in some morally significant way, you can be absolved of the obligation. But again, given the normal conditions of life um, in modern Western societies, it's very unlikely that people would be able to satisfy this burden I mean, some people could, conscientious objectors could argue that they don't really benefit from defense or they don't benefit enough to justify their being required to serve in the military. And I think this could be perfectly legitimate. Um, the objections would have to be litigated on a case-by-case -case basis. And it's very possible that a large number of people will be freed of obligations they would otherwise have. But... Um, given the size of the population and, again, the nature of the benefits, I think that the fact that some people are freed for morally legitimate reasons is not sufficient to upset the overall fairness of the system. So just because some people are conscientious objectors, it doesn't necessarily mean that um, you or I would be freed from the burdens of defense. Interestingly, in Israel, um, something like 15%, I think it's 13% of the population is ultra-Orthodox, and they argue that they should not serve in the military. So once you're talking about something like 15% of the population not serving in the military, and in Israel serving in the military is very onerous, then you do get into questions whether the state is sufficiently fair to require other people to serve. So, um, again, as long as the state is reasonably just and, and reasonably fair, and as long as the conditions that we're talking about um, are satisfied, I think you can make a case that most people will have requirements to serve in spite of um, disagreements, in spite of differences in values. And again, this is because the benefits are so important. So again, regardless of your political views, um, the pandemic, you know, COVID-19 is going to kill you. So it is sufficient or it's going to make you very sick. Um, so um, it is possible to 
require people to cooperate with provisions in regard to curbing COVID-19. Though, again, in the United States, we've had such significant disagreements that this is really a, a live and difficult political issue. So let's go back to this notion of consent. And um, it's been around uh, in terms of a, uh, a point of discussion really since, I guess, the 17th century uh, with the debate between Hobbes and Locke about the legitimacy of government authority. And you uh, note that consent is insufficient. Uh, it, it can work to a degree, of course, if it's voluntary consent. But um, Locke had the idea of tacit consent. So why is tacit consent insufficient uh, in modern political theorists? Yeah, this eyes? is actually how I got interested in political obligation. My colleague at the University of Virginia, John Simmons, who unfortunately recently um, retired, has written the, um, I guess we would say the classic criticism of tacit consent in the modern literature. The argument actually goes back to David Hume in an essay of the original contract, um, 1748, I think is when Hume wrote the essay. So Locke argues, as you just said, that even though people don't expressly consent to government, they don't take an oath. And the only people in modern societies who really, or in our society, really take a free oath to government are naturalized um, citizens. So even though people don't expressly take the oath, they can perform other actions that constitute consent. And for Locke, the most significant is the fact that we stay in the country. You've heard America, love it or leave it. If you don't want to obey American laws, you can leave. But as Hume um, argued, and Simmons um, picks this up, um, we really don't have a choice or much of a choice about whether we want to stay in the country or leave. If we leave the country, we have to uproot our from our friends, our family, our civilization. We have to learn another language, perhaps. Another country has to let us in. We have to um, practice a profession in another country. You know, so the costs of leaving are so high that according to Hume, it's like saying that a person who's been kidnapped and put on a ship um, stays there freely if he doesn't jump into the ocean. So Simmons, um, um, develops the argument further. And according to Simmons, we have to look very carefully at what tacit consent is. And according to Simmons, tacit consent is still consent. It differs from express consent, not in being consent, but in being the way it is expressed, and it's expressed through non-action. And again, um, if you look very carefully, you can see that most people don't consent through non-action. And again, the main reason is that the costs of leaving your community are so high. But we can look at something else like voting. Um, if you vote in an election, does this obligate you to obey the law? And the argument would be no. And the reason it is no is that when you vote, you are not saying to yourself, if I don't vote, I don't have to obey the law. I don't have to pay my taxes. And the legal situation is such that if you don't vote, you still have to pay your taxes. So voting is really um, largely irrelevant to um, um, consenting to obey the law. And you can go down an entire litany of additional possible ways through which people tacitly consent. Kids in school say the Pledge of Allegiance. Does this constitute consent? And again, the kids are not saying, um, are not thinking 
that if I do not say this, I don't have to obey the law. The kids are generally much too young to have thoughts like that. The kids are not um, sufficiently competent to consent. You know, so again, um, the consensus in the literature is that consent doesn't work. And again, given the fact that consent doesn't work, we have to find some other basis for obligation. And it turns out to be extremely difficult to do. And once the philosophers have started looking at these arguments with minute attention, it seems that it's very difficult to establish any argument convincingly. And the dominant position in the literature um, counterintuitive as this seems, is that there is no obligation to obey the law. So I don't agree with this position. As I've um, noted, I believe in this fairness argument. But again, um, there's a lot of dispute in the literature because it turns out to be extremely difficult to present convincing grounds why everybody should obey the laws of the state, even if the state is reasonably just and reasonably fair. So you've got consent as one possibility, but uh, modern theorists in, in some ways reject it or find it insufficient, I guess. They don't perhaps reject it outright, but um, then you've got another idea about uh, uh, judging things by their consequences. And we often refer to this as consequentialism. Uh, so explain what that is and why that's uh, maybe insufficient also. Yeah, this is a lot of fun for... I, I take it, you know, a lot of fun for political philosophers. So again, it's very um, commonsensical that you should obey the law because the consequences of your not obeying the law will be dire. So in the first recorded philosophical debate about political obligation in Plato's dialogue, Crito, um, the laws of Athens in a hypothetical conversation say to Socrates, Socrates, if you disobey the law, you will destroy the state. The state will be destroyed if people disobey the law. And the difficulty there is the laws of Athens are mixing up um, two things. They're mixing up Socrates disobeying the law and everybody disobeying the law. And this is the difficulty with consequentialism that there are actions which, if performed by one person or a small number of people, have no real effects or no negative effects um, upon society or upon government. But if they're performed generally, the effects are catastrophic. So the example I like to talk about is my beloved 1988 Subaru which was in terrible um, shape, and it didn't have a catalytic converter. And because the car was in terrible shape and I was unwilling to spend a lot of money on the car, and in Virginia, you can pass inspection without a catalytic converter, I drove around for a couple of years without a catalytic converter, you know, even though I thought what I was doing was wrong. You know, I'm ashamed to say I still did it. And the reason I felt I was justified in doing this, and again, I'm being hypocritical in saying this, but um, the point still holds is that with the best modern technology, with the most sensitive air pollution instruments in the world, no one would be able to tell the difference in Charlottesville, Virginia's air if I used a catalytic converter or if I didn't use a catalytic converter. And what is more, my kids were young then, and if I 
saved money on a catalytic converter, $400 or whatever it is. I'd have money to buy my kids presents or buy my wife a present. You know, I could create genuine joy with that money, something that would have consequences, whereas there were no negative consequences of my not doing this. But again, if everybody drove around without catalytic converters, the air pollution would be terrible. Um, People's health would suffer. Um, Even if people's health did not suffer, our feeling of well-being would be severely undermined. So again, um, consequentialism works if we are talking about general patterns of behavior. But if you're talking about individual patterns of behavior, it doesn't work. So the difference between the argument that I support, the fairness argument, and um, and consequentialism is fairness does not refer to the consequences of the action. So again, according to a fairness argument, because I benefit from the fact that everybody else is using their catalytic converters, it's unfair for me not to use a catalytic converter. So even though the consequences of my using the catalytic converter or not using the catalytic converter are undetectable, it's unfair for me to take advantage of the well-meaning behavior of other people. So fairness is like consequentialism, but it gets away from the fact that your obedience or disobedience has to have actual consequences. There are certain laws, disobedience of which... um, does have actual consequences, a law against murder. If I murder somebody, I'm violating the law, and I'm also doing something that has very harmful consequences. But again, there are many laws which, um, the, the beneficial consequences of which do not depend upon obedience by particular people. They depend upon obedience by people in general. And so uh, you make the point that you favor fairness. Um, fairness, obviously, sometimes is uh, evaluated in the eye of the beholder. It's a very subjective concept. For, uh, and so how do we know that something objectively is, quote unquote, fair? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, um, you know, people will disagree. And I guess we really see about the disagreement in regard to requirements to help cooperate in putting down COVID-19. You see this. So um, beyond a certain point, um, um, beyond a certain point, it's going to be difficult to establish um, anything. You know, so the argument depends upon, um, you know, a reasonable amount of goodwill, a reasonable amount of intelligence, a reasonable amount of willingness to face up to facts. And um, this raises fundamental questions about justification and contemporary moral philosophy. So the, um, the defense of this would really be um, ad hominem. You know, if somebody says it's unfair or if somebody says, you know, like me, like I could have said, it's fair for me to drive around without catalytic converter, even though I'm depending upon everybody else using catalytic converters. You know, there's disagreement there, but it is unlikely that I would be able to defend that position or sustain that position if I were questioned. You know, I could be just bloody minded and refuse um, to agree. And I think a lot of the people who are anti-maskers or anti-vaxxers are just bloody minded or they, you know, intentionally are remaining ignorant of the facts. You know, so again, it's a very good question. You know, how's this going to work if people are sufficiently determined to um, 
ignore obvious moral and obvious moral concerns and factual concerns, and it probably won't. You know, so the assumption is that people not be um, interested in in being bloody minded, that people be interested, um, people be in, being invested in doing what is morally right and in living in the same factual world that most people live in. Of course, when we think of fairness, we think in terms often of outcome, uh, kind of a consequentialist reasoning, right? Um, who who pays versus who gets the benefits, and uh, and so one of the one of the uh, methods, or I guess uh, one of the standards that's often used is the the notion of distribution, and. And so the distribution of the benefits, as you note, has to be, quote unquote, fair. Um, but of course, uh, there are a lot of things that societies do, uh, modern, Western, post-industrial societies that are uh, financed by everybody, so to speak, but uh, their benefits are concentrated. And so does this notion of fairness uh, while on the one hand, we're expressly reserving the question to should people be excused from obeying the law or should it provide a sufficient basis for making everybody uh, obey the law, doesn't it also start to cut into the idea of the legitimacy of the law itself? Yeah, so this is a different level of disagreement than what we talked about a second ago. And um, it's absolutely true that people have very different ideas, very different legitimate ideas about fair distribution of benefits and burdens. So the solution, I think, is that the question has to be settled democratically, that we need, um, again, reasonably fair, reasonably just democratic procedures, and then we elect representatives, and the representatives determined what sort of a tax system we should have or how benefits should be distributed. And there would be disagreements about what the, um, what the fairest democratic system is. And I think that one of the costs of living in society and receiving benefits from other people is that you have to accede to a reasonably fair um, political system making these determinations. We need to have these determinations made because, again, we can't live without the benefits. So the benefits have to be distributed in some way. And the fairest way to distribute the benefits would be on the basis of democratic decisions, I think. I think this is one of the more controversial points in the position um, articulating. But um, um, again, there doesn't seem to be any reasonable alternative because there are legitimate disagreements about fair distribution, um, fair distribution of costs, fair distribution of benefits. So the hope is that answering these questions through fair democratic procedures is sufficiently fair to satisfy the condition I mentioned earlier, that the benefits and burdens be distributed fairly. So it's not um, perfect fairness. Um, the, the hope is that it will be sufficiently fair. And so you come up with, uh, essentially, it's uh, you call it uh, a, a multi-purpose uh, multi-principle, theory. Multi-principle. Multi-principle, sorry. And yeah. um, 
And so it's kind of in, in some senses, a combination of all these different concerns that you've talked about, con consent, and consequentialism, and this idea of fairness. So explain how this works uh, if, it, if the world were arranged uh, or principled uh, in accord with how you see, uh, you know, the yeah. obligations being set up. Okay, so, you know, again, the task, what we're interested in is explaining why most people or almost everybody has an obligation to obey most laws or almost all laws. And in the literature, you know, traditionally, scholars attack that question by appealing to a single moral principle. We've mentioned consent. We've mentioned consequentialism. We've mentioned fairness. Some people argue that you're a member of society, and by virtue of the fact that you're a member, you've got obligations. And people talk about duties of justice, that in order to fulfill your duties of justice to other people, you have to um, obey the laws. And then we get into the back and forth arguments between scholars. And all of these arguments, as I've mentioned, have been subjected to severe criticism. And it's difficult to show that any one of them is adequate to sustain general obligations to obey all laws. So the thinking behind a multiple principle theory is that even if a single principle is not adequate to do the job, if we combine different principles, we might be able to create, um, through the combination of different moral reasons, um, enough moral reasons for enough people to obey enough laws to satisfy the necessary conditions for a successful theory of political obligation. So in regard to fairness, um, which is, again, the position I hold, the difficulty is that the argument seems to work and I've been working on this for almost 40 years, and I haven't seen a really good um, response to this. So the argument seems to work when we're talking about the indispensable benefits that I mentioned earlier, defense or law and order, protection from natural disasters, protection from um, deadly public health measures. But it's much more difficult to extend that argument to the other things that government does. Government provides education, government provides symphonies, government builds roads. And it's very difficult to argue that all of these are essential to acceptable lives. So the idea would be that once we establish the fact that you're a member of society, and you're a member of society by virtue of the fact that you receive these benefits that you're required to contribute to. But again, these are only the um, essential benefits. Once we establish that you are a member of society, we can appeal to additional principles. And one principle that's necessary is uh, your natural duty to um, help other people. Um, John Rawls, the most important political philosopher of the last hundred years or so, calls this a duty of mutual aid. So the question would be if there are people starving, and again, with the pandemic, there have been um, significant food shortages. So if there are people starving, um, how do we justify our requirement to help them? And this natural duty would explain why we have a moral requirement to help them. And this is different from the fairness argument that I've been talking about, because the benefits that are covered in the fairness arguments are benefits to you as opposed to benefits to other people. 
So if we're talking about helping people who are starving or providing social welfare services to other people, we are, of course, talking about benefiting other people. So fair play is not going to work. You have to support it with a natural duty. And I think that a subsidiary principle of fair play can be used, again, if certain conditions are satisfied, a subsidiary principle of fair play can be used to cover the other things that government does. You know, so again, once you are a member of society, um, it seems that the very fact that we have a government which is able to accomplish important purposes like education and symphonies, if you think that symphonies are important, once we have um, a government that is able to do things like this by combining the efforts of large numbers of people, then we benefit significantly from this mechanism. And we benefit so significantly from this mechanism that people should be morally required to cooperate with this mechanism. So again, I think that in order to accomplish the task of political obligation, which is, again, explaining why most people have moral requirements to obey most laws. No single principle is going to work. But common sense says that if these different principles cover different aspects of this overall task, by combining them, we can create a theory that is acceptable. And this position, I should say, is an outlier um, in the literature. And again, um, it strikes me as unusual that it is such an outlier in the literature because it seems so obviously commonsensical given the fact that no single principle seems to work. And again, we talked about consent. Even if consent is not able to ground all obligations, it is able to ground obligations for people who consent. So there doesn't seem to be a reason to throw consent out because it can't cover everyone, given the fact that it can cover a certain range of people. And so with other principles, by combining principles that cover um, different duties and different people, again, I think we get a messy but satisfactory overall theory of obligation. So let me ask, why do you think that what you see as a commonsensical, pragmatic, um, uh, should be appealing to different uh, viewpoints. Um, why is this not something that's accepted? In other words, why would scholars find something like this worthy of rejection? What, what's your suspicion on that? Well, I don't know. You know, again, it's a good question. Um, it takes a long time for views to percolate through the um, literature. But um, people um, in the scholarly community, people are invested in their own um, approaches and they try to succeed with their own approaches. They're reluctant to um, abandon basic assumptions of their approaches. I think the view is gradually um, catching on because, again, I think the view has a lot of common sense behind it. So it is gradually catching on. It's by no means um, a majority view. Um, it is probably at this point a significant minority view, but um, it, it's much less neat and messy. Um, I'm sorry, it's much less neat and um, elegant than the single principle views are. And philosophers are invested in values of simplicity and um, elegance. And um, it, it's um, inherently undesirable for them 
to take up a view that is as messy as the kind of commonsensical view that I'm talking about. So I think common sense is often um, a lot messier than the views that philosophers are interested in. So uh, most of this book is about uh, reasons for obligating us to obey the law, but also at the end of the book you discuss different reasons for essentially excusing people from obeying the law. And so uh, you talk about conscientious objectors, and uh, you also make the distinction between those who rebel or resist versus uh, what we could kind of say is a definition of civil disobedience. Can you uh, describe that distinction? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, again, um, political obligation is a subject that has great contemporary relevance. So civil disobedience um, is peaceful resistance to government. And the assumption here, the assumption underlying civil disobedience is that the government is not um, completely just. So civil disobedience, which we're seeing most dramatically in regard to civil rights, is a response to particular injustices of government if the government is thought to be um, generally just or overall just. So through civil disobedience, you disobey um, particular laws that are viewed as unjust, but you also publicize this and you demonstrate your sincerity by accepting the consequences of your disobedience, which means accepting punishment. And under these conditions, you try to change the overall public sentiment in regard to these laws. And I think we saw it in regard to civil rights. You know, through a long struggle, um, especially in the South, people came to recognize the injustice of racial segregation. And it takes a long time. Um, Dr. King liked to quote the line that the arc of the moral universe um, is long, even though it bends towards justice. So it takes um, a long time to change things. But through civil disobedience, you hope to awaken the conscience of the nation to the injustice of particular laws. So these laws will be changed. And the assumption that the government has to be generally just or overall just is seen. If you imagine what would happen if people performed civil disobedience in Stalin's Russia or Stalin's Soviet Union or in Hitler's um, Germany, um, the people who are disobeying the law will simply be massacred or Tiananmen Square, we saw what happened in China when people demonstrated for democracy. So um, if the government is not just um, or not sufficiently just to be capable of change, civil disobedience isn't going to work. But again, in our society, the hope is that the government is sufficiently just or the population is sufficiently just to be able to respond to awareness of the injustice of particular laws and change. And again, a perfect example of this is what happened in Minneapolis with George Floyd, who was killed um, almost exactly a year ago. Um, what happened was so outrageous, and people could recognize it as being outrageous. What happened was so outrageous that um, hopefully laws in regard to 
police behavior are going to change. That's not an example of civil disobedience. I don't think George Floyd um, willingly got himself into the position he was in, but you can see the importance of the recognition of injustice to leading people to change the laws. So civil disobedience is a mechanism through which people are made aware of the injustice of particular laws, so they'll be willing to change them. And then if they're not, if civil disobedience doesn't work, and the government is um, highly unjust, um, then we're talking about much more extreme tactics um, up to and including revolution, which may be necessary to change a regime such as the Soviet Union or um, Hitler's Germany. If civil disobedience um, won't work, the question is what will work? And for an unjust government, um, the only thing that is likely to work is, um, is probably violence. So um, in, in regard to the competitors, uh, the assessment, you had noted earlier that um, the idea that there is no really good justification in, a lot, in the eyes of many scholars. Um, wh- how do you see the state of the debate among scholars today versus what we might call popular conceptions of uh, reasons to obey the law. I mean, people are obviously fearful of disobeying the law. They, they know that there are consequences to them personally if they get caught. It's always a risk. Some people are inclined to take it with, uh, if they see other people doing it, like violating the speed limit, but um, others, you know, other kinds of risks they're less willing to engage in. Uh, they're not necessarily terribly philosophical about their reasons for obeying the law. Um, And so how do you see the disjoinder between uh, scholarly notions about this versus what we might call popular sociological reasons? Yeah, it turns out that there's not much good empirical research on people's attitudes towards obeying the law. As you said, um, people are not very philosophical about their reasons. So survey research is very, um, um, it's very superficial. Um, it has a hard time getting at the attitudes of the people um, that we want to study. Um, I've actually done focus groups, and I've done focus groups. Um, focus groups, you get a bunch of people um, together, and they talk, and it allows for much more searching examination of what they feel. I don't talk about it in this book. I do talk about it in one of my other books, which is called Political Obligations, which came out in 2005. Um, most people in focus groups, and I'm talking about something like 20 people overall, so we're not talking about a vast swatch of the population, but um, people with different levels of education, um, different ages, um, people generally think that they should obey the law, that they have a requirement to obey the law when we're talking about significant laws. People don't necessarily think that they have an obligation not to jaywalk, something which is relatively insignificant, but people think that they should pay their taxes or if the country's under attack, they should serve in the military, something like that. So again, there is um, a disjunction between what people think and what the um, scholars argue. So in the absence of convincing arguments for political obligation, um, various alternatives arise. I think most scholars, um, well, it's different from what I said before. Um, um, Well, I'll take that back. Um, What what you get um, are 
alternatives to political obligation. You get the idea that the state has what is called a liberty right to make laws, that it is okay for the state to make laws and to enforce them through coercion because people recognize the fact that they need the state and they need the laws to be enforced, even though they don't have a moral reason to obey them. And um, a view like this, it's actually what I'm working on um, right now, um, a view like this is um, increasingly popular in the literature. It strikes me as pretty um, uncommonsensical. So um, I think the only reason you get scholars having recourse to views like this is because it's so difficult to pre present a convincing argument for political obligations. So if it's so difficult to present a knockdown argument for political obligations, and we recognize the fact that we need the state and we need the state to enforce the laws, what's the alternative? And the alternative is this sort of um, halfway position. So again, the literature is in um, turmoil now. But again, as you said, I think most people think that they do have moral requirements to obey the law. So I think it's an important job for political philosophers to provide reasons to explain why people do have, do in fact have these duties. And again, one advantage of the multiple principle approach that I'm talking about, even though it is messy and inelegant and has to be cobbled together, is that I think at a practical level, it might succeed. And I think it's important on a practical level to be able to explain to people why they have moral requirements to obey the laws. And again, in the absence of convincing philosophical reasons, you can see a, um, someone accused of a crime saying, I don't recognize this as a crime. I don't think I have an obligation to do this. And I think society needs to be able to provide reasons why people should obey the law. So again, I think it's an important task for political philosophy, but again, at the present time, political philosophy is having a hard time um, meeting that need. The book is entitled, Why Should We Obey the Law? And we have been joined today by its author, George Klosko. George, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Oh, thank you, Ian. I enjoyed it um, a great deal.